So it's been a while since I've been with you. Last I was with you, it was at the fairgrounds, and uh, all of us had hats on but Phil. And um, that Sunday morning, we discussed our relationship with the law and how Jesus came to fulfill the law. I thought it might be good to review a little bit that. Um, so t- we, two weeks ago, in that passage where we ended, we ended with verse 20. And in verse 20, it says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, what a tall order. Unless your right living exceeds your religious leaders, your scribes and Pharisees, you don't qualify. That must have just been like over their heads. Like, what? Unless we're better than them? Next, you recall that fulfilling the law did not mean that what the law represented was just gone. We looked at a verse from Galatians in Galatians 6 2, where Paul speaks of the law of Christ. That led us to a question that, well, what is the law of Christ? And for that answer, we turn to Matthew chapter 22, verses 30 through 40, where we read this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the laws and the prophets. All the morality that was followed in the Old Testament is the same in the New Testament. You see, it's all based off of God's has said, His loving kindness for us, His desire for us to show loving kindness to Him and then to show loving kindness to one another. Jesus then gives us here, what we're going to begin with this week is six illustrations of what it means to live a better righteousness before him. A better righteousness than the scribes and Pharisees. Now, some will look at this and say, well, he is reinterpreting the law, or at least reinterpreting the interpretation of the law that was handed down from generation to generation. Well, I believe the latter is correct, that what we see here is that Christ isn't reinterpreting the law so much as reinterpreting the interpretations that the people understood. He's instructing us in what the spirit of the law is, and that was to love. His call here is for a change in the heart attitude. His call is for you and I to live out a radically new ethic by understanding the spirit of the law and making that our life. Let's just open up in a word of prayer. Father, as we turn to your word, and as we look at these verses in Matthew, help us to understand how they work in our lives. Help us to understand this radical new ethic that you presented so many years ago that's still relevant today, of how you desire us to live out before you and among one another. 
We ask that you'll push aside all the thoughts that may crowd us to focus in on you and on your word. In Christ's name we ask, amen. So if you're not there already, if you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 21 through 26. I'm going to dive in. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. Anger is somewhat what we're going to touch on this morning. And anger is a, is a very real emotion. And sometimes it's a misunderstood emotion. And if you were to Google search dealing with anger, you're going to net 140 million results. Try surfing through that. See, unchecked anger leads to relationship breakdowns. Relationship breakdowns in churches, in families, in workplaces, and in communities. Unchecked anger can lead to take, leading to take a physical toll on a person. Remember the phrase from the Old Testament, sin is crouching at the, your door? Well, that is what unchecked anger is. Unchecked anger is sin crouching at the door. It's a great description of it. How often do we watch the news, scroll through our social media, and come across a video of a couple of people arguing? And as they argue, everything begins to escalate. And before you know it, a fist fight breaks out, such as what we saw at Rogers Stadium on Friday night. Um, and then a knife or a gun is pulled, and it goes from there. I know someone earlier this month was in London, and they worked the night shift. So when they finished the night shift, they thought, it's a little too early to go home, don't want to wake everybody up just yet. So decided to pull over to Tim's, go through the drive-thru, pick up a coffee, and they headed over to a parking lot not far from their house, and they thought, oh, I'll just watch the sunrise here, sip on my coffee before I go to the busyness of the day and getting the kids ready for the day and everything that will happen before I go to sleep. So he sat in the parking lot for a second, started to sip on his coffee, and he could see off in the distance in the parking lot two men arguing. And as they began to argue, it turned into a fist fight. And as it turned into a fist fight, someone pulled a knife. And before his eyes, a man was murdered. But long before that act of murder, there was an attitude of the heart. And that's where it began. In each of the six illustrations that we're going to look at over the next coming weeks, as he describes this new ethic, this radical new ethic of how you and I are to live, each begins with the same formula. You have heard, but I say to you. He's tying them all together in a way that we will understand that this all flows from his thought in verse 20. He wants us to understand that his previous thought, he's continuing with it. He's continuing with the thought of what is a better righteousness? What does this look like? How do I live this out? Look with me at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, at first glance, you might consider the those of old as a reference to Moses. That's who he gave the Ten Commandments to. But if he meant Moses, why didn't he just say, well, Moses told you long ago? 
No, I think this is actually a reference to the rabbinical teachings or interpretations of the law given over the years. Christ's first illustration comes right from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not murder. And that word, murder, originally covers not only premeditated murder, but death through carelessness or through negligence. We know what the penalty for premeditated murder is. That was set out for us in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From, from every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning of the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, a man shall, by man shall his blood be shed. For God did made man in his own image. See, and in the cases of what you and I call manslaughter, provisions were made under the law there too, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 12. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if a man die, did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will point for you a place to which he may flee. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked with capital punishment this morning. That would be a long discussion. And I think that's why Jesus simply says here in this verse that if you murder, justice needs to be served. Jesus continues in verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, before we move on and dive into that part of it, we need to understand a couple of words from there. The first one is angry. Angry means to be enraged. It means to express a strong displeasure. It could be furious. Some manuscripts actually insert angry without cause, which is actually legitimate because it seems that that's the intention of Scripture here. Because not all anger is wrong. Not all anger is sinful. But that's the study for another day. So we're talking about getting angry. The second one is insults. So ESV uses insults. Others still translate it with the term. If you have an older version, you may have raka. It's an abusive term. Uh, Along the lines of empty-headed. Or or do you recall Lucy's favorite insult to Charlie Brown? You blockhead. That's what we're talking about here. And the third one we need to define is the term you fool. In the ESV, that's how they put it. In the NLT, the New Living Translation, they say curses someone. The word there is moros, from which we get our word moron or moronic. Someone who is mentally inert dull in understanding, brainless. Think of it as an insult on steroids. Now, I understand that the term moron today is both outdated and offensive to many, but that's the point Jesus is making here. When you get angry and you become offensive towards someone, or as the NLT translates it, you start cursing them out. So there's a progression here, right? The progression here is from angry, a sense of strong displeasure, to insults, you blockhead, to being offensive and calling someone a moron or cursing them out. And as 
As the emotions progress, so does the penalty. The first call is for justice. The second call is that you'll have to answer for your behavior to the religious council, to the Sanhedrin. And then finally, the danger of hell itself. Let's just pause for a second and think about that. I believe the illustration, we don't want to dive too deep into details, but I believe the illustration calls out our speech and what we may say about others. Not that we're not called to speak the truth, because we are. In, a spirit, in the spirit of the law, though, this means we speak the truth in love. So I believe we need to think about what we say to one another, what memes we post on our social media accounts, how we interact on social media. Do we cross the line at times? Are we posting things that you would never say face-to-face or things that you would never say in a church building? Let's move on. Again, Jesus has no desire for us to get stuck in the details here. But his point is for the listener to ask a question. And the question is this. With this new definition of murder, am I guilty? If this is how Jesus defines murder, am I guilty of it? Or are you guilty of it? The question is meant to go straight to the heart in more ways than one. James Montgomery Boyce says this, The point is that the root of evil lies in the heart, where love must be substituted for hatred and indifference, and sincerity for hypocrisy and selfishness. Now, if you play golf, and I know some of you do, the idea is to keep the ball in the fairway. And if it ends up in the rough, you're in a little bit of trouble. And where I grew up, if you missed the rough, or the fairway and the rough, you ended up in the farmer's field. And we'd say you were in the weeds. I don't want you to get lost in the weeds this morning. I can imagine some objections already that people might have. Well, can you define anger for me? Does, does, doesn't Scripture talk about a, a righteous anger? Aren't there examples of righteous anger? Well, yes, there are. King David even writes a few psalms where he voices his anger. They're referred to as precatory psalms. However, if you and I were to be honest with one another, there are more times that when we get upset, it has very little to do with righteous reasons. We often more get upset and our anger arises out of someone crossing the lines with our preferences and has nothing to do with scriptural convictions. We often find ourselves offended when something is done against us, real or perceived. That's where we find ourselves more often irritated and upset. We feel slighted. Somebody may say something and we choose to take as it an insult when they just may have meant to be playful with us. And when we end up feeling slighted or neglected, and we can feel that for many things, someone may have missed you in the hallway at church or in the community. 
and we think, oh, what a snob. They won't say hi. If you do that to me, I'll just tell you, hey, are you being snobby the other day? But I know what happens. I hear it. I see it. And when that begins to fester, when festering is done, we become irritable. The irritation turns to flying off the handle or losing our temper. Then we begin to harbor grudges. We begin to gossip, gather people into our camp. And it builds. One commentator said it well when he said, We kill by neglect, spite, and jealousy, by committing character assassination, destroying a person by our words. And there's plenty of this in our culture today. You think we're supposed to be tolerant. We've been taught that for years. In the name of love, we've got to learn to tolerate and accept one another. But as soon as one person does or says something that the mob doesn't like, they are canceled, which really is just another term for character assassination. A person cannot say they're sorry enough if they cross the line of the mob. There's no turning back at that point. If you even hold a view contrary to the social justice warrior crowd today, you'll find yourself on the defense of a full-out assault on your character. And the goal is to destroy your life to the point of losing your ability to earn a living. This is done to both the living and the dead. Historical figures, in essence, die again to be obliterated from history books, from the public square. And nothing must be proven in court. And if it is proven in court and it makes its way to court and it's contrary to the mob belief or mob opinion, then the judicial system must be corrupt. It's here. Jesus equates these attitudes and actions to murder, to evil intents of the heart. And you and I as believers are called to a higher standard. We're called to live above this. Jesus gives two illustrations next to what he means concerning this. And both, he begins the word so. First, look at verses 23 and 24 with me. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. See, the temple is the setting. They would be very familiar with it, the place of worship. For us, that might equate to this building, this auditorium that we find ourselves in this morning. They'd come to offer a sacrifice, a gift, as part of their worship to the Lord. And the term brother here is used very, it's used here and before, and it's very broad. The word can mean fellow countryman, neighbor, by extension a fellow believer in the faith. And, and because we're pre-cross, when they talk about a fellow believer in the faith here, they're not talking about the church. That's not how the audience would understand it. They're talking about Israel, all the people that would attend the synagogue and the temple. In the plural, brothers refers to men and women. can also refer to a brother, a near kinsman. It regularly refers 
to near kinsmen, both male and female. It can refer to the same nation. They're all brothers because they're all Jewish. Can be one of equal rank or dignity. Can be an associate. See, the context to which you find the term brother determines how it's used. So what's the context? Well, the setting is stated. It's the temple, the place of worship. So brother here could mean male, female. It could be a brother or a sister. It could be a relative. It could be a fellow worshiper. It could be a stranger. See, the context here allows for a very broad definition to be applied. That's why the New Living Translation translates it broadly. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone, it's a very broad term, that someone has something against you. Think about that for a moment. See, it's natural for us to remember those who have offended us. Matter of fact, we have to watch that. I remember when I was down in the south, they talked about gunny sacks. I thought, What's a gunny sack? They said, well, it's just something you'd carry on your shoulder with stuff in it. And so the illustration was you'd carry your gunny sack, and as people offended you, you'd pick up the offense and you'd throw it in the little sack. So sort of like a backpack. So we have to be careful that we don't throw all those offenses in a backpack and begin to carry them around with us. So it's natural for us to remember when we've been offended. And it's easy for us to demand justice. Hey, wait a second, what about this? It's a whole other thing to remember when we have offended someone else. Real or perceived when they've been offended by something we've done or we have said. D.A. Carson noted this, stating, and if we are truly concerned about our anger and hate, we also shall be no less concerned when we engender or provoke them to others. So if we're really concerned about anger and hate in the church and in our lives, then we need to be concerned that we don't provoke somebody else into having those feelings. See, Jesus is simply stating, if you desire a right relationship with me, with Christ, you need to be in right relationships with one another. Diffuse the anger before it grows. Be proactive. Examine yourself. Deal with it. Be reconciled. Love God. Love people. See, life... Live not just by the letter of the law, but by the spirit of the law. See, the religious leaders throughout the Old Testament missed this focus. The religious leaders thought, well, how do we please God? Well, by keeping the sacrifices. That's how we please God. Well, what made a sacrifice acceptable or unacceptable in the Old Testament? Let me read to you from Isaiah 1, 11. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of the fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. That's what God's saying about sacrifices. Then we go down to verse 16. Wash yourself and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphans. 
fight for the rights of widows. The Lord wants obedience more than he wants sacrifice. He wants to see hased in our life. He wants to see loving kindness in action. Sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? The book of James. Faith in action. That's what God wants to see in our lives. And in Amos 5.22 through 24, we read this. I will not accept your burnt offerings and your grain offerings. I won't even notice all your choice peace offerings. Away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Instead, I want to see a mighty flood of justice, an endless river of righteous living. Reconciliation is their priority. The new radical ethic of Jesus Christ in the new covenant is a heart filled with love and not anger. Too often Bible teachers limit this just to brothers and sisters in the church. However, the original audience would never have understood this that way. When you read it, we read it in broader terms. How we treat and engage the people that the Lord has placed around us. So it's not only the people you're sitting beside here, it's your neighbor. It's the person across the street. It's the person that you work with. Remember what Paul states in Romans chapter 12? We've said this recently too. Verses 17 through 21, we read this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the, leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, overcome by, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow. That creates tension. That creates tension in the Christian life. Living faithfully... Live faithful lives to the Lord in obedience. Loving Him while loving others. Loving those that God has placed around us, including unbelievers. Including unbelievers with a contrary belief system to yours. See, we are to love others while we love God and while we live in obedience to God. Unfortunately, today, far too many people and far too many churches and denominations are increasingly giving up the living in obedience part. They're not living in obedience while loving God. They completely reinterpret the Scriptures. They throw away God's moral code, His ideas. They overemphasize loving others at the cost of obedience. They're unable to accept limits, believing that love is love and it has no limitations, placing themselves as an authority over Scripture. God's moral law then takes a back seat. Some 
theologians, especially progressive theologians, reinterpret Scripture by ignoring cultural context, by rewriting history, and twisting it to support their new God. You know, a loving God with no limitations is the motto. God is concerned for your happiness. They espouse a lie. As if you've never heard this before, God has little concern for your happiness. God's concern for you is your holiness. True happiness, or should I say true joy, comes out of holy living. The second part of the illustration continues the theme in verses 25 through 26. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. I say to you, truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. As with the first story, is the same in the second story. The initiative lay with the offender. This time it's not a brother. This time it's an adversary. Listen as I read it from the New Living. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to the officer who, and, who, and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid the last penny. Again, don't get caught too much in the details. Don't miss the point. The, the situation is serious. The case is before the courts. The trial date has been set. You're on your way there. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, settle it. Reconcile now. Deal with it. Deal with it before the proceedings begin. And this harkens back to Romans chapter 12 again. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. See, you have no idea if you will be vindicated. So reconcile before judgment happens. Jesus uses, uses this same parable back in, or ahead in Luke chapter 21, verses 54 through 59. Let me read this section to you from Luke. He also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, Well, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat. And it happens. Well, you hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. And why do you not judge yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. See, the context here is a warning to Israel. Reconcile before it's too late, before judgment comes. So what is Jesus saying when he uses this in the parable in Matthew? 
Well, Carson states this. It simply insists on immediate action. Malicious anger is so evil and God's judgment so certain, verse 22, that we must do all in our power to end it. Christ is trying to drive home the point of urgency here, that unresolved anger can fester. You and I, we, we've both witnessed this, haven't we? Where we, we've been up close when someone is upset with a parent or a parent is upset with a child and then one of them suddenly passes and we've watched the guilt-ridden son or daughter struggle over words said or unsaid the loss of a relative or a friend close to us. Or how about that empty spot at church? Gone is the one that you had words with. Gone is the one that you held the grudge against. And it's too late. Why? Because we don't see the urgency to settle and to reconcile. Out of this comes an obvious question. Does the burden rest just on me alone? And this would be especially legitimate for the believer. If there's an issue between people in a church, who does the responsibility lay upon? Is there no responsibility upon the offended party, the offended brother or sister? Well, the answer to the question is yes. Yes to both questions. And I say that for this reason. If I was to infer, give the affirmative that, yes, there's a, 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 a bit of um, responsibility at the hands or at the feet of the person that's offended, then what would happen? People would sit back and say, oh, I'm going to wait for them to come to me. If they're offended, they should approach me. So the answer is yes to both. If you believe you've offended or know that you've done something to offend someone here, then the onus is on you to go to them. And if you've been the one that has been offended, the onus is on you to go to the one that offended. Christ is saying it, it lays at both persons' feet. Both persons have a responsibility to deal with this. Now that is a radical new ethic. A lofty goal compared to the Jewish tradition of dealing with the law. See, they were only concerned with the physical act of murder. Don't kill anybody. But you could kill someone over and over again through character assassination or in your heart or verbally. That was fine. Just never lay a hand on them. So as the audience listened as they tuned their ears into what Christ was saying, I can imagine many of them saying, how can I ever keep that? How, how can I ever stop that? I character assassinate people all the time. Well, that was the point. The whole point was you couldn't keep these new lofty ethics. Remember back to the earlier part of Christ's sermon? That you recognize that you're spiritually bankrupt and that you're in need of Him? So the task on our own is too big to keep. It can only be accomplished 
through God's Spirit living in us. So when we begin to acknowledge our spiritual bankruptcy and our need for Jesus Christ, and we come to faith in Jesus Christ and accept His offer of salvation and repent from our sins, and His Spirit comes to live within us, then, and only then, can we begin to live out that new ethic. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That was the message. That's the same message today as we look at this Scripture, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That His death, His burial, His resurrection was a substitute for your punishment. He stood in your place, and He still offers that gift to you today so that you can, through the power of the Spirit, live out this new ethic and to truly love your neighbor and love your fellow Christians. And you might be sitting here this morning saying, well, wait a second, Pastor, I've already done that. Then the question to you is this, are you still murdering people? Are you guilty of harboring a grudge, anger towards someone? Could be someone sitting in the service this morning. It could be a neighbor down the street. Are you guilty of character assassination? Do you believe you have offended someone or have you been offended? If you need to look around, go ahead. Don't stare too long at somebody, but if you need to, and think it through. I mean, we all hear what happens in grapevines. Someone's upset with me. I've heard that. Like we need to, we need to understand churches in general, and it includes this congregation. The pandemic was a difficult time on churches. The pandemic was difficult on leadership. The leadership here did their very best in prayer, and I'm not defending them, but they did their very best in prayer with Scripture because there is no guide to a pandemic in Scripture, but they did their very best to guide this church through the pandemic, leading and also trying their very best to go before God and say, what would you have us to do? And choices and decisions were made to balance out What's God require of us before Him? What God, does God require of us before our government? Now, I'm not saying it was perfect, and I'm not saying mistakes might have been made, might not have been made, but that's not the point. We'll admit, we know people left. They got upset. People left a lot of churches over this last six months, and they have gone to churches that agreed with their particular view. But that's not the point. The point is this. If you are harboring a grudge this morning, if you have something in your heart and you feel that you've been offended, then you need to get it right. The point isn't who's right and who's wrong. God assigned leadership in churches, and people need to learn leadership was put there for a reason. And if you're harboring a grudge, you need to reconcile and to deal with it. This is a heart cry from churches across our land this day. I've talked to a number of pastors. I even sat in our home church in London last week. People were missing, I asked. And they said, well, they got upset with how we handled COVID and they've gone somewhere else. So the exodus has been from more than just here. It's been from other places. We've also 
you as a family lost a pastor who resigned and moved to another place, took up another ministry. That sometimes leaves hurt feelings, feelings of abandonment, feelings, oh, are we handling things right with this again? Our intern decided not to stay on and move on. He's told me he's coming back to the church, but he's moved on as far as not working as an intern. How that is all dealt with, and, and, and people get hurt feelings. They're just a few of the bigger issues that this church has had to deal with over the last years. But there's many others that come up on a regular basis. Why? Because you and I are sinful. So as we live life together as imperfect people, things come up, real or perceived, and we find ourselves being hurt because we as people often seek out our best interests first. But what are we called to do here in Matthew? We are called within urgency to reconcile, to make things right, to grant forgiveness, to love the world around us and to love each other. So if you've done something wrong, you need to confess and you need to deal with it. Even if that means looking around this morning and say, I need to talk to them. And I, I don't care. If you need to talk to them and you feel God's putting that on your heart, go grab them by the shoulder right now and take them out of the service and talk with them. It doesn't have to be long, drawn-out ordeal. I think some people don't settle differences because they're like, oh, it's going to be. And it doesn't have to be that. It could be a, a short conversation of granting forgiveness recognizing there was a difference, praying with each other, and committing to each other that, yeah, you might believe a little differently on some things that were handled or what was going on in the church, but that's okay. I'm going to commit to love you, and you love them. Perhaps it's a little more serious, and you need to get leadership involved, or maybe it's within a marriage. You need to get some counseling, and we're here to help you find someone who can help you work through those points with you. The point is to repent and to reconcile and to get back on track so that your light shines before the world, so that the church here in Forest shines to the community as an example of what it means to love and to care for one another. So those grievances need to be dealt with. Repentance needs to take place. Forgiveness needs to be granted. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads for a second. Take some time to go before the Lord and say, Lord, is there anybody in the building that might feel that I've slighted them in any way? Is there anyone that I may have offended, Lord? And then you'll know in your heart faster than I can say the words if you have been offended or you feel that you have been offended. And if you find yourself on either side, it doesn't matter because that's not what Christ said here. Christ wanted us to understand the urgency and he wanted us to understand 
to get things right now before it's too late. It's only when churches and people get their lives right with one another that you can truly live in right relationship with God. It's only when you get things right with one another and right with God that you begin to shine as a beacon as you were called to be, a light to the nations, a light to the people around you, that they might be drawn to the church and the people of the church to Christ our Savior. And the responsibility for that is, is not an elder, it's not a pastor. The responsibility is with the individual to live a life in such a way that your light shines before men. Father, we thank you this morning. Father, if there is this morning anyone here that needs to repent, Father, for grievances to be dealt with. Father, let the onus not lie on the other person. Help us to understand the urgency to deal with it now. That Forest Baptist Church might be seen as a place of love and care. That we love God and we obey His commands and we love people. That it is both. Father, we thank you for the community that you've put us in. May we be a light to the world around us. It is a dark world. It is a world that's very confused. It's confused because of the pandemic. It's confused around moral issues. And Father, we do pray that you'll give us opportunity that you'll draw people to yourself. But let it first begin with us by drawing to each other in love and care and in forgiveness in an understanding, and to you. And then we can really shine for you in this world. In Christ's name we pray.